1: New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order, beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 151
0: of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens.
2: Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I'm doing great. How about you? I am good. Is there anything new in your world? You know, not really. It's all just the same (laughs) as the last time we talked. Yeah. I I will say I did put a few advanced reader copies of Fast Feast Repeat into some local friends' hands yesterday, and that was really exciting.
0: Oh, that's exciting.
2: I thought you were going to say that you dropped them off at like news stations or something. No. No. My husband wants me to do that. He's like, why don't you call the news? I'm like, I don't want to. (laughs) We'll see what happens with that. But I don't know. I'm not out there trying. I don't know. It feels weird. He also always wants me to put my delayed on deny copies in like little free libraries. I'm like, I don't want to do that. That's weird. But he wants me to.
0: So is your self-published one in libraries?
2: Oh, it is in a lot of libraries. Delay Don't Deny is in a ton of libraries. And I know this because people talk about it. Like somebody will say, well, I went to go try to check out Delay Don't Deny and I was number 100 on the waiting list. Like I've heard that a bunch. There, there's a huge waiting list for it at libraries, which is you know exciting to think about it. But yeah, they have to buy it from Amazon just like anybody would. And the ebook, because it's you know self-published, but there are different places other than Kindle, of course, to get the ebook. And I self-published through KDP for the paperback, which is Amazon, and also Kindle with the Kindle version. But the other ebook versions, like the iBooks version and the Nook and all the other versions, go through a company called Draft to Digital. They're the one that like libraries can get theirs through like Biblioteca or something in Overdrive which are services that libraries use for their ebook management. So I know that Delay Don't Deny is available in ebook form in some libraries as well. But I don't know why does that make it feel more real, knowing that people can check it out from the library, right?
0: I don't know. I had that same reaction though when some people first started saying they were getting mine in libraries. I was like, oh okay.
2: <laughs> I just spent so much time at the library as a kid and even as a young adult. I checked out a lot of books. And I don't know. It just gives me a little thrill to think about.
0: Me too. Now I'm thinking about my library days in the summer. I would like check out like 14 books each week. As many as they would let you.
2: Yeah. 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 I was like the maximum.
0: And how did I read them all that fast?
2: Yeah. I was a fast reader too. But no, Chad wants me to put them in those little free libraries. Have you seen those? I've seen like the boxes. That people have like just by the side of the road. It's a little free library and you're supposed to put books in and take books out. Mm -hmm. So he's always trying to get me to go put them around all those in the neighborhood. I'm like, I don't think so. (laughs) I think people, they're finding them. (laughs) Anyway. It's so funny. It is. Anything new with you?
0: Not really. Just taxes. (laughs) Trying to figure that all out. Oh, my goodness. It's crazy. All self-employed people will understand. I miss the days where it was just like a W two and then (laughs) I'm like done.
2: Yeah, I didn't understand it. The very first year that I was, quote, self-employed. I mean, I was still teaching. It was, you know, 2017 because Delay Don't Deny came out on December thirty first of twenty sixteen. So it was, you know, pretty much all of twenty seventeen. I had book sales. I didn't know I was supposed to be, you know, paying estimated taxes or any of that stuff. I didn't know how any of that worked because I'd always just been paid with a W-2. And so then in 2018, when I was trying to do my taxes for 2017, I was like, I feel like I might need some assistance with this. And I went to see a local accountant and he was like, yeah, (laughs) you've been doing it all wrong. (laughs) So thank goodness he's helped me out a lot with that. So yeah, it's insane. I have to write myself checks as paychecks. I have to pay withholding taxes on the money I pay myself. I mean, it's just, I had to incorporate. It's all really different, but thank goodness for professionals who understand how to do it. I'd still just be muddling through. I know, outsource. Yeah, yeah, thank goodness. That's why they exist because it's just really complicated. I do have one quick little story that's exciting. Okay. I feel like I
0: normally attract less than ideal conventional doctors, but I actually found the most amazing, perfect dentist ever. I'm like wanting to tell everybody about it. I sought him out because he was one of <laughs> one of the only dentists in Georgia who owns a cone beam device. Have you heard of this?
2: I don't know what that is. So <laughs> I can't wait to hear.
0: It's a 3D X-ray imaging machine that actually creates an X-ray of your entire head. It's lower dose than normal x rays, but at the same time, it shows way more. So it can find if you have any like hidden dental infections or things like that, because apparently, like a huge percent of like chronic illnesses and, you know, problems that people have can relate to undiagnosed dental infections that are like hiding in your somewhere in your
2: head. Yeah, I've actually heard that. Like when people get root canals, it can send it deeper inside and then they have this problem that they didn't know was there. Yeah, and then it's like
0: constantly leaking in basically your nervous system. So, because I interviewed Dr. Daniel Pompa on my podcast and he was like, you should really try getting a comb bean scan. I was like, I will find a dentist with a cone bean machine. And there was one. <laughs> and he's in the Atlanta area. Mm-hmm. And I went to him. Oh my goodness. So this is how you know you found a good dentist. A, everybody was so nice. And I just think you can tell people are happy that they like working there. And then they took my vitals at the dentist. I was like, this is wonderful. Like clearly he is into your whole health, you know, like if they're taking your blood pressure and your pulse and things like that for a dental cleaning. And then the cleaning itself was fantastic. The imaging was really great. And then when he actually came in to evaluate, he really wanted to hear my story. And then he would ask me things and he would say, okay, and how do you feel about that? I was like, oh my goodness!" Like. <laughs> like, thank you for asking. And then at the end, he's sending off the comb bean to to an imaging expert. But he also said that, cause I have TMJ and I know a lot of people suffer with that. And he said that cause he's a much older man. And he said that like his thinking had completely changed 180 about that in the past like few years. And so it's so refreshing to hear, you know, doctors and dentists that are not, you know, Wetted in their ways, like, that are open to change. That really is cool. If you'd asked me this, like, he's like, I've been doing this for, I don't even remember how many years. He's like, but if you'd asked me this, you know, five years ago, I would have said something completely different. At the end, he wrote me a handwritten letter thanking me for coming in.
2: Oh, and he, like, mailed it to you? And recapping the visit.
0: hmm I was like, best dentist ever award. I love my dentist, too. She's just lots of fun. I was going to say, you do the laughing gas, right?
2: Yeah, one time when I had some Valium and then the laughing gas, I was like, I want you to come over for dinner. <laughs> She's funny. Yeah. She was talking about all the cocktails she likes to make, and she seems like lots of fun. That's amazing. There are a lot of great healthcare providers out there lots and lots and lots.
0: I'm bringing onto my podcast. Dr. Becky Campbell, I think she's a book about the thyroid, but her newest book is about histamine. So I'm going to do an episode about all on histamine. But I think I'm going to work with her as well as a practitioner. And her intake form, I like wanted to cry. It was so beautiful. I mean, it was really, really long. You know, asking all about your history and everything you've gone through. But similar to what I said before about how do you feel about that? Literally every question it would ask you, and then it would say, "And how do you feel about that?" You know, like diagnosis, or how do you think that affected you, or what do you intuitively think is going on? And I was like, this is so refreshing to engage with a practitioner that actually wants to hear your perspective of things. That really is fabulous. Yeah. She's she's going beyond just the surface. Yeah, it was amazing. And like the final question was like, why do you think other doctors in the past have I dunno if you used the word failed, but you know, haven't <laughs> panned out. So I'm like, wow, I'm sold. Sold. So motivational things for listeners
2: to know that there are good ones out there. Just got to find them. Yeah. And more and more doctors are on board with intermittent fasting. I interviewed somebody today for my other podcast. It's an episode that isn't coming out until April. I'm a little bit ahead there. But she she works in the healthcare field. And she talked about how she was at a surgical center the other day. And of the people who worked at that surgical center, two-thirds of them – We're doing intermittent fasting in some form or another. Oh, wow. I should have made you guess. Sorry. (laughs) What fraction of people who worked at the surgical center do you predict were doing intermittent fasting? (laughs) I probably would have guessed like a third. It was two thirds. So I thought that was very exciting. I think the New England Journal of Medicine article in December really did bring it to a lot of people's attention. I wonder how that statistic has changed since just even December.
0: Yeah, I imagine. Most likely. All right. Shall we jump into everything for today?
2: Yes. And we have, first of all, a question from Lindsay. And the subject is cravings for healthy foods. Lindsay says, hey, Jen and Melanie. First off, I want to say how much of a godsend this podcast has been. I'm a health coach and general wellness enthusiast, But IF and the information I've learned from you two has filled in so many of the gaps in my personal health journey, as well as my coaching practice with clients. Thank you for all you are doing to further the mission of wellness for everyone. On to my question. I know you guys have talked about the phenomenon that occurs after someone who has been IFing for a while goes from eating and craving processed junk food to slowly wanting progressively healthier options. I am curious if you guys know anything about the science behind this transition. I am sure this has something to do with IF helping people become more intuitive with their bodies, but I guess I'm looking for more of a science-based answer about what mechanisms are actually causing the shift. Thanks in advance. Keep at it. You are changing lives and having a ripple effect larger than you guys can probably imagine. Warmly, Lindsay. And that little last part gave me like a tingle. That was beautiful. I never really thought about the ripple effect. Well, that's really true. It's the, you know, there was a commercial, it was like a shampoo commercial back in the 80s, 70s. I don't know. It's like, and they tell two friends and they tell two friends. And it's like Fabergé, or I can't remember, L'Oreal, one of those. It was way before your time, but it showed the power of exponential growth of, you know, like once you find something you like and then you tell two friends and they tell two friends. And then before you know it, there's that ripple effect. It's
0: amazing. I love it. Me too. And I love this question, and I did a lot of research. <laughs> a lot. Okay, so, yes, Lindsay, there is science behind this. And I think there's two aspects to consider. There's the mental aspect of the cravings, and then there's the, the physical aspect. So for the mental aspect, well, to start, I actually found a really fascinating study that I'm not going to talk about the mechanisms, but it actually does. I don't like the word confirm, but it it shows, I'll just read it. It's called hunger slash craving responses and reactivity to food stimuli during fasting and dieting. Ooh, that sounds really good. I'll just read the abstract because it's pretty much sums it up. I really like the abstract. It says a group of dieting obese patients were instructed to report their feelings of hunger and craving on a continuous basis before and during a three week treatment period. Once a week, they were also exposed to food slides to measure their reactivity to food stimuli. The frequency of hunger craving responses and reactivity to food stimuli showed radically different changes over time in the fasting and dieting groups during the last week of fasting reactivity to food slides was completely abolished and the frequency of hunger craving responses was close to zero. Only slight changes of frequency of hunger and craving responses and reactivity to food stimuli were observed in the dieting group. The results suggest that the frequency of hunger craving responses and reactivity to food stimuli show parallel decreases during fasting, but no changes during dieting. So, That's just a nice way to start things off to say that clearly we've seen in studies that fasting compared to dieting can reduce cravings. That said, it's complicated because I did more research on that. And a lot of other studies on dieting have also shown reduced cravings. So that makes things more complicated. But in any
2: case, it doesn't change the fact that clearly cravings are going down. All I can say is whenever I, quote, dieted, the longer I dieted, the worse my cravings got.
0: Yeah. I think that's pretty telling. It's like they say that craving versus appetite or craving versus hunger, like with craving, if you're truly needing, and this kind of ties into the physical part, like if you're truly needing the nutrition, the hunger will only grow stronger compared to if you're not needing it, the craving would grow weaker. And I think in a dieting type aspect where you're not providing adequate nutrition, your cravings are more likely to increase compared to intermittent fasting where you're getting adequate nutrition, which is,
2: that's the second part of what I was going to talk about. Can I say this though? This one other thing made me think of it. When I experimented to see how I felt being completely vegetarian, I started craving meat like crazy. So that's another example. Is that what you were going to say? That's part of my second point. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but I mean, it was true. I started like craving it in a different way. Like last night, you know, I haven't been eating vegetarian. Last night I made these big old pork chops with dinner and I was like, "Eh, I just don't really want very much meat tonight. I ate a little bit, but while I was being vegetarian, I would look at meat and I'm like, I want to eat all that meat. It's like my body was missing something.
0: Yeah. So yesterday actually I interviewed William Shufelt and Dr. Ted Naiman. We've had William on the podcast before. He's
2: Awesome. The Red Power Ranger?
0: Yeah, he's the Red Power Ranger. <laughs> he plays the Red Power Ranger on Nickelodeon's Power Rangers like Ninja Steel or something. The the it's so funny. We started the interview, and the first question I asked him, I was like, wait, can you explain to me? Cause I didn't realize like the Power Rangers are like new Power Rangers every time. Did you know that?
2: What do you mean by that?
0: Okay, it's kind of like when I had the epiphany that there'll be always like a new Spider-Man. But with Spider-Man, it's the same. Like, it's the same Spider-Man. It's just like a reimagining, you know? Does that make sense? This kind of stresses me out a little bit. Okay, so it's like Spider-Man is like a character. Right. But then they release all these movies and it'll be like a new Spider-Man, but it's the same Spider-Man, but like not really, sort of. I was like, is that the way it is with Power Rangers? I was like, every time that they come out with a new Power Ranger series, is it the same Power Rangers, but like not really? And he's like, no, they're actually completely new Power Rangers. I didn't know
2: that. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'm not a, a Power Ranger aficionado. My children weren't my boys were not into that. Yeah, I never watched it. So, I was like this
0: is a good moment. I'm learning all about Power Rangers from the Power Ranger himself. <laughs> In any case, so they wrote an awesome book called the PE diet that stands for protein to energy ratio and Dr. Ted Naaman's hypothesis and theory, which really resonates with me, I think there's a lot there. He doesn't think cravings and nutrition and diet and health is about plants versus animal or even carbs versus fats. It's really about protein that, like protein and minerals, that's what our body needs that's our foundation. And that also goes into the protein leverage hypothesis, which is pretty well accepted by a lot of people, but it's basically that you will eat until your protein needs are met rather than any other macronutrient. That can be a reason that, especially with like processed foods that people overeat because they're low in protein. So you have to eat so much of them to even get the amount of protein that you need. So basically one of the things I was thinking about with intermittent fasting And cravings, because then there's the flip side. So there's the the protein needs. So we need a certain amount of protein, and then we also, of course, need energy. And something else he talks about in his book is that there are basically three types of energy hunger that we can experience. So there's hedonic hunger. So that's just the literal addiction to you know the dopamine driven addiction to like processed foods or something. We've all experienced that, right? You know, it's like like using food as a drug. Right. So that's not at all related to nutrient status, needs, energy needs, anything. It's just, you know, an addiction, really. And I think obviously intermittent fasting can really help with that because you, and I'll talk about this more in the mental part, but by abstaining, you know, you're breaking that connection. The other two types of hunger would be for actual energy, but that would be split into two types. There would be the actual needing energy and then the energy from like blood sugar crashing. So people can get stuck in, you know, blood sugar crashes, and and true, they do need energy because their blood sugar crash, but it's because they're primarily fueling on blood sugar, compared to being in a state of ketosis or intermittent fasting, where you're not reliant on that blood sugar as the primary drive, so you're not experiencing that type of hunger. So I think with cravings and intermittent fasting, that because in her question, she's asking why you start craving, you know, more healthy whole foods and not processed foods. I think when you enter, and it's just like a theory I'm kind of pulling together here, but like, if you think about it, when you're in the fasted state and you are running off of, you know, body fat stores, your body's not going to be actively searching for that fuel because it's adequately fueled. So I think that can really help with you won't be you know craving all these foods at least even as a source of energy because you have energy already within you that said i think you might crave you know when you do eat you're going to be needing protein definitely and you know foods high in protein are going to be things high like whole foods so you're less likely to be going to a processed food like your body's going to be you know, having a clear sense and needing nutrients and needing nutrition. And while processed foods might tell our body, ooh, ample energy, I don't think they tell our bodies ample nutrition. So I think intuitively you're more likely to crave whole foods that are rich in nutrition compared to processed foods, which are not. Something, was it in his book or something? I think it was a different book, but we're saying a good way to tell if what you're experiencing is a craving or hunger is – When you have the craving, ask yourself, would I want to eat a thing of salmon and broccoli right now? Because if it's just like a craving, you might not be, you know, wanting something that's like really satiating like that compared to if you're actually hungry. So I did find a really fascinating mental study. But did you want to comment on any of that,
2: Jen? No, that's all just fascinating. But that theory makes sense. You know, you've got your energy needs met during the fast. But now your body's craving the nutrients, right? Well, I mean, we know that pregnant women crave nutrients that they're missing. You know, we've talked about this before that pregnant women have pica, I think it's called P I C A. When pregnant women have pica, they start to want to eat chalk or clay or even like laundry detergent. Some people start to crave these strange things. I mean, I've never looked at a piece of chalk or clay or laundry detergent and thought, I need to eat that. But these pregnant women who have this nutrient deficiency start to crave it and cannot stop themselves from like eating it. That's clearly something in their bodies, you know, driving them to eat it. So we know that this happens. We know that our bodies are looking for certain nutrients and then drive us to eat those foods. So, you know, when I haven't had nutritious foods for a while, my body is like, ooh, have some kale. That looks really delicious. I think intermittent fasting helps us hear it. It's like we clear out all that. I mean, this is this is me supposing. You know, I don't have like, here's the study that proves this. But I think that we disconnect from it with our modern eating lifestyle and all the non-food things that we eat. And we're eating all the time. So I feel almost like the more real foods you eat, coupled with intermittent fasting, your body gets used to looking for those real foods again. And then to that point, two other points to that point, I tried to
0: find it, but we talked about a study before, Jen. I don't know if you remember. And it was one that looked at dieting individuals consuming whole foods or consuming like processed foods. The ones consuming whole foods had drastically less like hunger and cravings. Right.
2: I don't remember that specific study, but I 100% believe that to be true based on the way I feel when I eat.
0: Yeah. Same here. And then I think with intermittent fasting, you know, once you, so you start craving these more natural whole foods, you start eating them. And then I think it's a upward spiral because you, A, you start craving those, those same foods because we do know, we do see like studies showing that you start Craving the foods that you're eating. You know, that could be a lot of things. It could be, you know, conditioning, but it could also be changes in the gut microbiome. So, right. I was thinking that too. Also, since fasting actually has shown beneficial effects on the gut microbiome, that's another thing. So, there's
2: really, really a lot there. And you can't really untangle what's what. It's like a whole web of interconnected things that are changing in your body. You're changing hormonally, you're changing metabolically, your gut is changing. You're able to hear the signals better.
0: Exactly. And then I found a really fascinating study. It's called frequency of consuming foods predicts changes in cravings for those foods during weight loss. And what it found was really, really fascinating. I got really excited. So they basically found that changing the frequency that dieting individuals consumed foods that they craved affected their cravings, but the amount didn't. So basically reducing the amount of times that dieting individuals had foods that they craved lessened their cravings. It didn't matter though, if they had a lot of those food, like the amount didn't matter. So for example, why I think this is really telling for something like intermittent fasting is that intermittent fasting would reduce the frequency. So say you are eating the foods that you're craving still. So after all we just said, say that you are still eating these
2: foods that you crave. Like Oreos. I mean, I don't like Oreos, but let's say it was Oreos.
0: Yeah. So, this is actually really fascinating because we just talked about how, well, in general, intermittent fasting is going to make it easier. You know, you might stop craving Oreos, but say you even do still eat Oreos. According to this study, their findings found that if you were doing a diet, but you're eating the Oreos constantly throughout the day, but you were dieting, you would constantly be craving the Oreos. But if you ate the same amount of Oreos, but ate them, so like all at one time, and then didn't have them the rest of the time, your cravings would actually reduce for the oreos isn't that fascinating?
2: that is interesting, so it's over time,
0: yeah and so because their their theory surrounding that was that basically food cravings you know they fluctuate during the day and they're largely paired with stimuli that like instigate the craving so that can be something internal like having hunger anxiety and we know with intermittent fasting that that's dealing with the hunger part because you're getting fat adapted, so you're not having that hunger cue anymore. Anxiety, I mean, I think with a lot of people, intermittent fasting you know helps like anxiety as well. But external cues for cravings are things like the time of day, driving, watching television. But when you're engaging in intermittent fasting, those cues slowly go away because you're no longer, because now you're just eating in your window. So you lose those other cues that might be starting your cravings. True, when you first start intermittent fasting, you might you know, have to deal with these cues, but because you're intermittent fasting, it's just like you don't engage, and so slowly those cues will go away. So their conclusion, and this is like literally intermittent fasting, but they don't say this, obviously, but they say, to reduce food cravings most effectively, people should reduce the frequency of consumption of craved foods, not limit the amount of the craved foods consumed. So eat
2: it in an Oreo window. <laughs> you know, that that makes me think about a student that I taught. He's probably in middle school now. It's maybe even high school. I'm trying to think of how long ago I had him. But this kid would bring a snack. Like kids are allowed to bring snacks to school. And he would bring his little snack. Like let's imagine it was Oreos because he would have those little snack packs. And it might well be Oreos. He would nibble through that snack pack like a little mouse nibbling on something. If you can imagine a little cartoon mouse. And, and I swear he probably spent four hours eating that snack pack of whatever it was. And I would watch him eat them. And, you know, we didn't have rules about when they had to eat their snack or how they had to eat their snack. It just couldn't interfere with their work. So, but I would watch him do that every week when he would come to me and think, what effects is that having on him? The fact that he's nibbling tiny little amounts of that. Constantly. It can't be good. I remember I used to do that in high school. Really?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had my like diet bars and I would like nibble on them. Like a little
2: bit constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think that can be good for us. I think I mean, maybe if, if I had it to do all over again now, maybe I should have said something to him. But I was just observing, you know, trying to let kids have autonomy in the way they eat their snack. But, <laughs> you know, it probably wasn't a good habit. Probably not. <laughs> no. Yeah. And then there was one other finding
0: that they just mentioned was that energy restriction in general did lower cravings for fats, sweets, and starches, but increased cravings for fruits and vegetables in another study. So I think there's just a lot there, a lot going
2: on. It all goes back to what Lindsay said. She said, I'm sure this has something to do with IF helping people become more intuitive with their bodies. And I think it's hard to know all the things that are going on that make that happen, but we can say, yes, that is what's happening. Because I, I was not an intuitive eater in any way, shape, or form before IF. You know, I've talked about this before. I tried and tried. I wanted to be so badly. I read all those books about intuitive eating. I bought into the whole mindset of it and then intuitively ate my way up to 210 pounds because I could not hear my body. You know, we were told in, in those books, and, and I love those books, and I wanted so desperately to be that person. But they all say, ask yourself, am I hungry? Whenever I asked myself that, the answer was Yes. I never heard, no, I'm not. And so thankfully, intermittent fasting has helped me learn how to hear, no, I'm not hungry.
0: Well, I was going to say, I don't even know so much that that's the whole issue with the intuition aspect is your body potentially was hungry because it wasn't being...
2: That's true. I wasn't getting nutrients. Right. Fuel. Like You weren't getting what you needed. Another premise of the whole intuitive eating books and, you know, the the advice they give is that no food is bad. You're you're supposed to get rid of all the food judgments. No food is bad. No food is good. You know, you're just supposed to intuitively eat and your body will guide you. Well, my body never did guide me to better choices or different choices until intermittent fasting. And what's funny is I wasn't trying to become an intuitive intermittent faster, but that did finally fix the problem. I suddenly could hear it. All the things that they said, I should probably go back and read some of those books now. Everything they said would happen with intuitive eating that did not happen to me did happen once I also became an intermittent faster.
0: Yeah, I think that's so telling.
2: Yeah. I never got the cravings for better foods when I was just you know, tried to do it in a regular, typical eating schedule. It wasn't until intermittent fasting came along that I suddenly did. And I didn't have to try. That's the part that's even better. I didn't try to make different choices. My body did start signaling me to make them. So, you know, there's just something to being constantly in the fed state, I think. You know, insulin resistance, leptin resistance. There's probably other types of resistance we don't even identify that being in the constantly fed state, Like being at a rock concert that's really, really loud, so you can't hear anything. You know, I think that's what eating all the time is kind of like. Yeah, I could not agree more. All right. Well, I don't know if we gave Lindsay the science, but we know it's there. (laughs) I think we did. We, I think we did too, but I don't know if we explained it exactly. But, you know, all those little things coming together, let us know there's definitely something to it.
0: Yep. All right. Shall we get back to our questions? Yes. So now we have a question from Kath. The subject is eating too much in a short window. Kath says, Hi, Jen and Melanie. I have been intermittent fasting for nearly three years, but I've only discovered your work in the last six months or so. I love your podcast and I'm always recommending your resources to others. In an effort to lose that last bit of weight, five kilograms or so, I've been dabbling with shortening my eating window to something like a 24 approach. I generally have a late afternoon snack, then dinner, then, quote, dessert. I try to follow a lower-carb approach to eating. I usually do this 24 approach on days that I'm busy with work or errands. If I'm not so busy, I find it hard to skip lunch and usually just fast for 17 to 18 hours. Two questions. Okay, so here's her first question. She says, does it get easier to fast for 20 hours every day even if you're not busy? That's a good question. I don't think we've had that specifically before So because I think a lot of people— You know, when they're staying busy, they find it easier to fast. But do you think if you're not busy that it can still get easier to fast?
2: Well, I think that actually she's right. If you're not busy, it can be harder to fast because you're thinking about, is it time to eat? Is it time to eat? Is it time to eat? You know, on days when I'm busy, I don't even think about it. But on days when I'm not busy, I do start thinking about it. I work from home and I might start looking at the clock because eating is enjoyable. It's pleasurable. I like to eat. It's not that I'm hungry. That's the thing. I'm not more hungry on the days that I'm not busy and less hungry when I'm busy. It's just you're thinking about it. So I do think that being busy is helpful. I remember early on, of course, when I was a teacher, it was super easy to fast at work. I just didn't eat at work. I came home, I opened my window. It was never a problem. But in the summer, when I was home from work, it would become more of an issue. So I got into the habit in those early years when I was a teacher on summer vacation. I would, you know, schedule my errands around two o'clock in the afternoon. Like I would, you know, spend my day around the house and then I would run to the grocery store. So I wasn't at home like tempted to open my window early. It was really boredom and just, you know, something to do, to eat. And I think a lot of people can understand that. So does it get easier? It just depends on why you're wanting to eat earlier. Even now, though, as I said, sometimes I'm still like, "Ooh, I could eat now. But I'm not really hungry, so I don't. And then I get busy again, and then it's it's easy to open my window later. Does that make sense? Did I explain that well at all? <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, 100%. I think I have a a way that you could actually make it in your favor though to make it easier. What is that? So say you're not busy, so you are experiencing this constant, you know, I want to eat, I want to eat, I want to eat. From a mental aspect, if you can start identifying that voice, you'll start to realize that it's not it's like a habitual cue, kind of like we talked about before. And by choosing to hear the voice wanting it, but then to not engage with it. Because if you engage with it and you break your fast every time, then you're not ever going to make forward progress in that aspect. But if you do hear it, acknowledge, okay, I don't have to listen to this voice. Then every time you basically acknowledge that and don't engage with it, it should in theory get weaker compared to if you're engaging with it, you're making it stronger. So you can kind of see it as like an exercise of a way to tame down that voice and learn to identify it as, you know, something not to be feared. I think that's the thing. I think people fear that voice. They're like, oh my goodness. Cause they think that if it happens, they have to listen to it when actually you don't. And once you realize that it doesn't have that power over you, there won't be that fear associated with it. So I think that's something that you could use to your advantage. That said, being busy does help.
2: Yeah. But it really, yes, it does get easier because you also learn that, like, for example, for me, like, let's say I'm making brunch for my husband. Sometimes on the weekends, he'll say, I want French toast. So I'll make him some French toast. And while I'm cooking it, it smells good. It looks, looks like it would be delicious. I never, Think about making any for myself, though, because I just know I won't feel great if I eat it. So it's really easy to say no to that, even if I'm not busy. It's easy to say no because I know how it'll make me feel if I have it. So the more experienced you get with intermittent fasting and the more you become in tune with how opening your window earlier when you don't really want to, how that makes you feel you'll not want to do it. Does that make sense, Melanie? Am I explaining that well? Yep. It's like envisioning your future self. Yeah. And I know we've talked about that before as well. You know, I know that if I had this delicious French toast with syrup, it would be delicious for the moment. I would feel really good. It would light up my brain at the time. And then in an hour, I would feel yucky. And I would be like, why did I eat that? I'm not glad I ate that. It would just be completely recreational eating, not because I'm hungry And so it's really easy to say no to those types of things these days. Now, if we were at a special event and there was an amazing brunch and I wanted to eat that special food, I would choose to eat it. But normally, even when not busy, you can think about how will I feel after I eat this? And you can use that to help you make that decision. That being said, Kath... I do start watching the clock more when I'm not busy, and as you know as I, it's getting you know two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, I start watching the clock and thinking about, hmm, is it time to eat where if I'm busy, I don't even think about it.
0: I think when you find the type of foods that work for you and the eating window that works for you, that's when it really becomes easier because then it's sustainable like if you're not addressing your nutritional needs, it might not ever become easier because you're always going to be needing those nutrients. You know, I think that's kind of, we talked about that earlier, but if you're not getting the nutrients you need,
2: likely intermittent fasting is not going to become easier. That's true. Yeah, you're right. Cause our bodies do keep sending us eat more signals until they get the nutrients that you need. All right. How about the rest of her question?
0: So her second question, she says, I do wonder if I'm eating too much with a shorter eating window. Once I start, it's hard to stop. How do I know if I'm eating too much? Is it just a matter of experimentation to see if I'm losing weight? Thank you, and I appreciate all your wonderful work in the world of IF.
2: Yeah, I do think that's true, Kath, because if you are eating too much, you know, quote, too much, what will happen is you will not lose weight or you might gain weight, and that is a sign that you're eating too much. Also, if you feel physically uncomfortable, you know, that's a sign that you're eating too much. You never want to feel... Physically, like, ooh, my stomach, I ate too much. So that's the thing about, you know, you talk about in your question, once you start, it's hard to stop. So that might be a sign that maybe that short window isn't quite right for you if you tend to overdo it in a short window. And maybe that's just, you know, on some days. And when you're starting off with a shorter window, you're overcompensating at first, and then eventually it starts to feel better. So to keep both of those things in mind. Overeating at first with a shorter window can be a problem, but then you adjust to it, and then you're not going to do that anymore. But you have been doing, you've been dabbling with shortening your window for a while, so... It's hard to know. It could be that a four-hour window is not your sweet spot, and that's why your body is driving you to overeat. So if if you're new to it, you can experiment and see if that changes over time. If you're doing it for a while and you find that you're still wanting to overdo it in a four-hour window, that just might be a sign that your body might prefer a longer window. The drive to overeat that doesn't get better over time is something we need to pay attention to. That makes me think that something about that is not working for you. It could be nutrients, like Melanie is saying, but it could just be that that just that window is not right for you.
0: Yeah, and I talked about this last week, but I just love this quote so much. And again, it's from that PE diet book. I'll put a link to that book in the show notes, by the way. It's explains so many things about why we can reach these states of being constantly hungry. Oh, really quickly, one thing he did say that. I thought about a lot, but I'd never really seen addressed. He talked about carbs versus fats versus protein and whether or not they, how they affected short-term versus
2: long-term satiety. See, that's interesting. Carbs versus fat versus protein. For me, it's not so much the macro as it is the refinement level of it, I think. He talks about that as well. So for like processed foods, it would be not really short-term or long-term satiety. Like if you give me a baked potato with real butter and real sour cream. And I eat that until I'm satisfied. I am satisfied for hours. It's like my perfect meal. Yeah. So
0: definitely, definitely whole versus process. So for example, for carbs, what would you think it would be short-term and long-term satiety? What do you think it would be?
2: Well, see, again, I'm having a really, really hard time with with that just because if I ate an entire bag of potato chips, even if it had equal number of calories, carbs, and fat. All whole foods. I know. But see, that's why I'm having a hard time with it because I'm just thinking, to me, it's the process versus whether it's whole. So let me shift my thinking now. I'm going to have to shift it. (laughs) You want me to think of only whole foods. Okay. So tell me the question again. So we'll start with protein. So-
0: protein, short-term, and long-term satiety, what would you say?
2: I mean, protein is pretty satisfying.
0: Yeah. He says protein offers both short-term and
2: long-term satiety. For me, here's the thing. I, I really feel like it might be different for different people. When I eat just fat by itself, like back when I was trying keto, I was not satisfied with just fat by itself. But see, I've also tried back in the day when I was in my crazy diet experiment time, you know, there was something called a potato hack where you were supposed to just eat potatoes with no fat. That also wasn't very satisfying. So like fat by itself did not keep me satisfied, but a potato by itself also did not keep me satisfied. It was when I put them together that I felt satisfied. So I don't know how to answer that question because they weren't very satisfying by themselves. The carbs weren't. Well, he just says fat
0: offers lower satiety than protein, but I've actually researched this. The studies seem to indicate that in the short term, fat typically doesn't increase satiety that much, but in the long term it does. So if you had a meal with fat, you're probably going to be less hungry like way later than if you hadn't had fat in that meal. Well, when I was doing keto, I was starving all the time,
2: nonstop. I never felt satisfied.
0: That could possibly also come into, so like the next thing is carbs. And he's saying that they're unique because they typically offer satiety for a few hours. But then because of the blood sugar changes, often don't have long-term satiety. And, of course, it really depends on what metabolic state you're in, how you're processing these. So it's very individual. But I think really playing around and finding the macronutrients that, for you, create long-term satiety without overeating is
2: important and key. Like for Jen, for example, that wasn't keto. No, it wasn't. But for so many people, it is. They say, I eat keto and I am just stuffed and I feel satisfied. For me, that was not true. Right. Exactly.
0: And I think it's with carbs as well. And something he actually said in the book was one thing I loved about his book is, you know how I'm always talking about low carb versus low fat and how I think they both can work. Like, I don't think you have to be low carb that's actually something he talks about in his book is that basically protein is the the anchor in a way that you really want to focus on and then low carb or low fat can typically both result in weight loss but he thinks that for people who are overweight usually lower carb works better and for people who are already at their normal weight or are lean that they might you know do better on a lower fat approach but keeping protein up is for he believes you know key for health and satiety so I think something you could try, Kath, is rather than focusing on am I overeating or am I you know, eating too much, paying attention to what you're eating, see if you can find some a satiating protein form the foundation of your meal. Something you could play with is trying a lower fat or a lower carb approach rather than focusing on calories and how much and quantity and see if that creates long-term satiety. I think you, you really just have to play around. I think people can get overwhelmed and they're like, they think it's just about the quantity of food or the amount of food or the calories, when maybe paying attention to what they're eating and, and tweaking it until it is something satiating might be more beneficial. So rather than just thinking about the amount per se, it cracks me up. I was just thinking, I've been reading Sean Baker's book, The Carnivore Guy. He was talking about how complicated humans are with dieting and how everything's just so complicated and there's so many factors. And because he was talking about with the carnivore diet, he was like, if this was my dog, he was like, I would just tell him eat steak when you're hungry. And that would be the entire book. (laughs) We're done. But humans are like crazy. So now here's like, you know, chapters on how to do it. I just
2: thought that was really funny.
0: It did speak to a, you know, telling point in a way, how complicated
2: we make everything. Well, I mean, and we're different. That's also the thing. We're not the same. And so, you know, it's really easy to assume that somebody else would feel great on eating big baked potatoes with butter and sour cream, but... I can't assume everyone would feel that same way or even be able to lose weight eating that way.
0: Yeah, like for example, that's basically what in that book Ted Neiman and William Shufeld say is what you should not be eating for weight
2: loss is combining high carb, high fat. Here's what's hilarious though, Melanie. When I was doing that, when I, when I really cleaned up what I was eating, this is back in the spring of 2015. I had 20 pounds to go to get to my what I had then as my goal weight and I was trying to get there quickly because it was like, you know, January, February, going into March coming up. And I wanted to be able to buy my new spring wardrobe at my goal weight. That was my goal. Get there quickly. So I read a book called The Science of Skinny. She talked about real foods versus processed foods. And I decided to just follow her guidelines. I talk about this in Delay Don't Deny and avoid the ultra-processed foods and also. You know, delay the alcohol. And I had already lost at this point, let me think, 55 pounds. My original goal was to lose 75. I had already lost 55 pounds. So I had been doing this for a while. And so I only changed what I was eating to eliminate the ultra processed foods. And also I shortened my window a bit to maybe one, two hours, something like that, and ate real foods. Every single day I ate high carb and high fat, real foods until I was satisfied. And I lost weight at the rate of two pounds a week. That was the fastest weight loss of any of it. And I was already down 55 pounds. So I just think that's very interesting. That was what my body loved. Sorry. So that was switching from processed to whole foods was the the big switch. Yeah, but I was eating real foods, but it was high in carb and high in fat. And so people are always like, yeah, but did you restrict carbs? I'm like, no, I did not. I ate potatoes. I ate beans. I put sour cream on there and cheese, and I ate berries in heavy cream. I ate real food and plenty of it. I cooked vegetables and butter, but my body loved eating that way. Potatoes, beans, dairy... And vegetables. That was pretty much what I was eating. But a lot of dairy fat. I had a lot of dairy fat during that period of time. And I was so full and satisfied. I didn't count a single calorie or a single mat- macro. I just ate until I was satisfied. And it really only took one or two hours of eating that food for me to really be full. And it felt great. But somebody else could eat exactly what I did and maybe they'd gain weight.
0: Yeah, I think it's so complicated. If nothing else, though, I just. Whole foods, I think, is so important. Which that's I mean, when I wrote my book, What When Wine, that's really that was my thesis, was basically intermittent fasting. There's not one diet for everybody, but to some extent restricting the hours is past benefits. And then on the food side of things, there's not one diet for everybody, but please whole foods, like whole foods. And I don't see any reason that I mean, obviously, you know. Maybe tomorrow we find out it was all the Matrix, and actually, processed foods are the most healthy thing for us ever. Doubt that's going to happen.
2: No, we will not. We will not find that out.
0: <laughs> Doubt that's going to happen. But I'm pretty confident in the idea that those two paradigms are not something that has to be so intensely debated. You know, like compared to like plant versus animal or carbs versus fat or this versus that. At least with the food thing, I think going whole foods is. Typically, a. Yeah.
2: I I mean, I don't know. There are those jokers out there who like to say, you know, that guy who tried that Twinkie, that professor, he's like, it's only the calories. I'm going to just eat Twinkies and lose the weight and prove it. Remember that? But he only did it for a short time. I feel like if you only ate that for the rest of your life, eventually you'd notice the problems piling up. I mean, you would definitely lose weight and experience all the benefits
0: from that. But you, if you're not getting the nutrients long term. It was a faulty experiment. Yeah, but I mean, yes, you can lose weight on processed foods, but most likely won't be sustainable. And there's probably going to be problems down the road. So, all right. This has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own question for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can also go to ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. That's where we put all these stuff that we like. We are a Himalaya partnered show. And if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. Also, please follow us on Instagram. We are IF Podcast. You can follow me. I'm Melanie Avalon and Jen is Jen Stevens. You can follow us on Twitter. We are the IF Pod. All right. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that's it. Great episode. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories, and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. The music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.